Welcome to The Greg Bennett Show. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have a wonderful conversation with one of the most passionate, energetic, driven, and successful men I know, Jamie Hunt. Jamie is incredibly open and vulnerable in this episode. His journey from being left off the New Zealand Olympic team to co-founder of the high-performance endurance compression brand, Two Times You, is just incredibly inspiring. His drive to produce the world's greatest products and his relentless pursuit of looking to do things better is grounded by his family, his community, his faith, and his physical training. It hasn't all been smooth sailing. His family have had to pack up and move, and he was on the road for 200 days a year for 13 years, and he's dealt with depression brought on by anxiety. But he's come out the other side wiser and more in control of his life. He understands what's important to him, and he's making it happen. Just so many great lessons and great advice in this one. His passion is just truly contagious. Now, some housekeeping before we go on. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and review on Apple Podcast. Um, Please keep the feedback coming on my social channels. That really is fantastic. And finally, you can find all the show notes, timestamps, the coupon codes, and all the links at bennettendurance.com forward slash media. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And remember, success comes to those who endure just one moment longer. I'm so grateful for the continued support of the show from these incredible sponsors. You really do need to have these products in your life. Personally, I use each of them daily. Athletic Greens, Nutritional Beverage, Hyper Ice Recovery Tools, and the Glutathione Supplement, Continual G. What I love about Athletic Greens is its simplicity. It's delivered straight to your door and it takes seconds to mix with water. It tastes great and goes down easy. And I know I'm getting the most comprehensive nutritional beverage on the planet in one quick drink. If you're looking for one product that has as much high quality nutrients in it as possible, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is more than just a multivitamin and multimineral. It takes it to the next level, adding a daily dose of superfoods, probiotics, greens blend, and more to support the gut health, energy, immunity, and stress. And right now, Athletic Greens is giving you, my audience, a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula. You'll receive one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs for free with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of the population are vitamin D deficient, including myself. I focus heavily in getting in the sun throughout the day, but when I can't, I religiously supplement with vitamin D. Adding vitamin D to your daily routine is just a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to get more out of your multivitamin and invest in your immunity, energy, and gut health, then you'll struggle to find anything more comprehensive than athletic greens. Take ownership of your health today and receive comprehensive nutritional insurance, a free year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Now, you'll hear me mention Normatec and Hypervolt from Hyperice in several of the conversations with my guests in this show. Many of my guests and I are using these recovery tools religiously. You really must have them in your house. Sit in a pair of Normatec boots at the end of a long day. Use the Hypervolt percussion massage device to warm up muscles and loosen hot spots before working out or anytime you have a niggling injury. They're just so easy and they're so quick and they work. They're vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology and Normatec compression systems just help you warm up faster, recover quicker and simply 
move better. Seriously, these products are the perfect Christmas gift for any family member or good friend. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E.com, and use code GREG10 for 10% off. I have a web address for all of my listeners who already know that one, the human body makes the most powerful antioxidants on earth. Two, the master antioxidant your body cells make is called glutathione and the human body needs glutathione to live. Three, the reason I'm addressing a select group of listeners with this web address is that once you see what these scientists in my hometown, Sydney, have accomplished, it'll blow your mind. Go check out continualg.com, continualg.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-A-L-G.com. Check it out and let them know that I told you about it. All right, today's guest is a former professional triathlete who transitioned to the world of high-performance sports and apparel and co-founded the brand Two Times You. He built that brand at a mind-boggling pace to a brand that had over $100 million in transactions a year and sold for a nine-figure sum. His passion, energy, and hard work was evident as an athlete. We raced each other throughout the 90s, and he was part of that exceptional group of Kiwis that just took the world by storm. He took that same passion, energy, and hard work into the world of fabrics and brand building and never looked back. He's one of the most genuine, down-to-earth men you could meet and combines that with a driven competitive streak that has just fueled him to become one of the world's great high performers. I feel fortunate to call him a friend, and I'm delighted to have him sit down with me today. So welcome, and thanks for joining me on The Greg Bennett Show. Jamie Hunt, how are you, mate? Very good, thank you. Very good. We're, uh, we, you know, we're definitely enjoying coming to summer here in New Zealand, and luckily for us, we are COVID-free. So um, you know, life here is pretty good. Oh, stop boasting. <laughs> anyway, mate, I, the, the, we have a lot to cover. You've been incredibly busy. Um, so I didn't know where to start this conversation, so I thought, well, why not just start at the beginning? <laughs> let, okay. let's, let's wind the clock back so we can sort of get a bit of perspective on who you are. Um, and let's sort of start with your sporting career. And tell me about and, you know, eventually I want to talk about how you transitioned into business and that. But for right now, let's focus on the sport. And when did you find your passion for endurance sports? Um, I think it was, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, um, you know, quite a, a lower socioeconomic um, area in New Zealand. And my mother was, um, it's just a smart lady. And, and she decided early on that she wanted us kids to keep out of getting involved in gangs and bad things. So, she actually um, enrolled me and my brother into swimming and into running, and um, and I, I ended up being a really good sprinter. And you know, I swam at a, at a competitive level, and and that kind of came through into high school. When I was fourteen years old, I wasn't a, I wasn't a very good student, I'd say, um, and so my parents shipped me off to boarding school. Um, and um, and at boarding school, it probably took me maybe six months to. To, to, to make any real friendships. And one day I went down to the magazine store and saw the very first edition of the triathlete magazine. Um, and then, um, and then basically, and, and then I, then I, I obviously I couldn't go online in those days, but I kind of heard there was a, it was a Les Mills triathlon in Auckland about 12 weeks later. And, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to enter that. So at, at this stage, I was probably a little chubby little boy. And, um, I think I was like 14 or 15 years old, um, and it, you know it was a and, and it was a 1.5 14 10 race, so it wasn't a short one, you know. 
And so I ended up basically, as I do with my life, I kind of go full on, full on into it. And I think I went from training from nothing to like three, three hours a day for the next 12 weeks. Anyway, so I go home like 12 weeks later and say to my parents, hey, on Sunday, I'm doing this triathlon. And that first list I said, you know, like, what's a triathlon? It was like 1980, I don't know, probably 86, 87 type thing. Mm. Um, you know, what's a triathlon? And, and, um, and, and I said, um, you know, it's, it's a you know, swim, bike, and run. But the funny thing is I actually landed back in um, – I flew back into Auckland where I lived. I went to school down in the South Island. And I came in and I'd lost about 10 kilograms from all this training. Because in those days we didn't know you trained to lose weight. We just, we just trained, you know, and – came back this and so she rang up the school and said are you not feeding my son you know it's like <laughs> um so, so so anyway i was like a 15 15 year old entered an elite triathlon um and my goal was just to break the the cutoff the cutoff was like three hours 30 um was the actual cutoff before you were disqualified from the event so my goal was simply just to break three hours 30 i ended, I ended up going like two hours 20 something so I was a lot better than what I realized I was. And, you know, I was still, I was still young. I, I think I, I think I, um, you know, I think I ran about a 42, which wasn't too bad for a, a guy my age, but I, I, but I was a runner. Um, um, so that didn't surprise me, but I actually, actually did okay. Uh, and so that basically spurred my, my, my passion for, for triathlon. And basically at that time too, here in New Zealand, I mean, I'm not sure if most of your listeners realize, but as you mentioned earlier, we just had a great, great breed of athletes come through. I mean, the same year level um, here in New Zealand um, for schoolboys, there was myself, there was Hamish Carter, there was one for gold medalists, there was Devin Doherty, one for silver medalists, Cameron Brown, multiple Ironman champion, second at Kona twice, Paul Amy, who um, second in world championships, and as you know, Greg, probably one of the most talented athletes mm. in triathlon mm-hmm. ever. Um, you know, there's a guy, and other guys like the Brian Rogers of the world, and there's a really amazing talent all come out of basically one city in New Zealand. Um, and um, so basically over the next three or four years, we just raced, and, and we raced locally here in New Zealand, and we just thought we were just like any other city in New Zealand of – you know, there's all these young kids doing triathlons, and yeah, and, and you know, obviously Rick Wells was was the big name in those days, and he was kicking our butt, but we weren't that far behind him. Um, you know, so so basically, you know, we we just raced, and and we we didn't realize we were actually were that good. And probably the first time, the, first, the, the, the I think the first time we realized it was that because I was probably the fourth or fifth best best guy of those guys. Um, back in those days, it was obviously it was a triathlon, it was non-drafting, and I'm a runner, so you know, in the ITU days, I was way better than than I was in, in the non-drafting days. But you know, the thing—the first time was I, I went up to America. Um, luckily enough for me, my um, my father worked for the airline, so I can get, I can get cheap airfares. So I went up to America. I think it was like an 18 year old, um, and I raced in the Orange County Performing Arts Triathlon. And um, and I remember I came out of the water, I think tenth overall. Came off the bike, went a big pack with Welshie and you know, all these really amazing athletes. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then, and then I ran and I ran and I ended up getting like 20th odd and, as an 18-year-old. And, but I bet the U.S. champion, junior champion at the time by 15 minutes. So I went home and said, guys, we're actually bloody good. You know, we're actually pretty good. <laughs> um, scouted and, the world. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and, then, and, and, then, and, then, and then from then, obviously, you know, we started to go to the World Championships and, you know, and and that that breed ended up, you know, um, that breed ended up, you know, I think I think the first Olympic Games, I think um, 
the New Zealand team ended up going into it as the highest ranked men's team just to the Australian. So for a country of at that stage three and a half million people, um, you know, we definitely um, had a real great, great um, breed of athletes come through at the same time. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the names that you mentioned, it, was just, it, was, it really was an outstanding group. And it was. It was all that same year. It was almost like what we had coming out of Sydney. You know, I was more Northern Beaches, but Southern Beaches, you know, Chris McCormack and Craig Alexander yeah. and, and that. And, and we were probably a few years behind you guys in terms of getting onto the world stage. Because when I, like you said, your dad, you know, worked with the airlines. I mean, I see you winning the World Duathlon Junior Championships in 92 yeah. uh, as a 19-year-old. And what I love about that, when I did the homework here, I had to laugh. You won it in two hours, 44. What was the distance in 92 junior world championships for duathlon? Do you remember? It was like a yeah. 10K, 60K or 10K. I don't, that's it, massive. It was, a, it, was a, it was a 10, 60, 10. So <laughs> the, the junior race. I mean, like in, in those days, you know, world champs, yeah. everything was long. It was 10, 60, 10. And, and, um, and I, I'm not sure if you look through the field, but. Back in Norman those Stadler days. there. Yeah, Norman, Norman Stadler was there second. And, and I was yeah, third. Yeah. And, and um, Oliver, Oliver, who got second, unfortunately uh, passed away. Oliver Hoschmidt. Yeah. yeah and, and I think he went on to win the World Triathlon Champs that year. So it was actually a really, really great – Duathlon was good in those days. And, and, yeah, and, unfortunately, yeah. and unfortunately for me, I, I won that, that, that twice actually. And I ended up yeah. um, deciding to go and do duathlon for the next five years, which was a complete waste of – of my time because uh, as it turned out later, I was actually an a, a okay triathlete. So, um, you know, so, um, but no, it was fun. It was fun. It was a, it was a, it was a great time. Well, 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 just for the listeners to get some perspective, he was better than an okay triathlete. Um, fast forwarding a number of years here, we actually had the same sponsor. We were on the same team together with team New Balance Japan. I don't know if you remember that, but basically yes. you were with them for about five years. I think I yeah. end up being with them for about 10, but I think our years yeah. crossed over there a fair yeah. bit. And um, yeah. just you had some incredible results. I think numerous podiums in the World Cups, which are now called World Triathlon Series events. Yeah. And if we fast forward even a little bit further, um, the 2000 Olympic Games, I, I've told my story on this podcast and you can tell yours, but, yeah. um, you know, being left off that New Zealand team for the the Olympics, you know, that, tell me about that. That, that, that. To me, it seemed a bit bizarre when I actually look at your performances and I don't want to yeah. discredit the rest of the guys on the team, but yeah. it was definitely one where it was like, hang on, what happened there? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I, I felt um, upset. I mean, I basically, from, from 1997 onwards, I had a mission not just to make the team, but to ensure that New Zealand got three spots. And um, mm, and mm. unlike nobody else on the New Zealand team, I, I can safely say that because I got the most points of anyone during that time um, for New Zealand. I dedicated my life to getting getting on that team for you know for those, for those four years. And 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 ultimately, obviously, you know, like '97, I was got, you know I was third in the world during the year and in the end of the year fifth. And I think during those three or four years, I was always around around the top ten in the world. Um, and then, and then coming into coming into the trials, it, it was it was you know I think it was harder in those days. Internet wasn't quite as good, um, you know. Policy making probably wasn't quite as good, mm. um, and um, and so I don't I don't hold I don't hold any grudges at all, um, to be honest with you. And, and but but basically they um, they basically announced that Sydney um, and uh, the World Champs in Perth two weeks later would be the two trials. Mm. So on, on an equal level, and basically they said, if you get in the top 15 at either of those races, 
you will be your name will go forward to be selected. Um, there was no like nowadays they said to get top five, whatever else too. But about apparently about two weeks out, they told everyone, not me, that if you're top five in Sydney, you're you're an automatic qualifier. And I didn't find out till two days before the race. And you know, yeah, those weeks before the race, I would have dramatically changed my training. I mean, I was trying to do well at both and ultimately the world was my was my main goal and I can remember like five days out I did a real hard session and it wasn't two days out I hit I was like hey come on guys this is not really fair um but you know I've 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 um you know I try not to be someone who's controversial so I went along with it and and um and Ben Bright who who we all know you know great guy and great coach now um he came out of the woodwork after not really racing much at all for the previous four or five years and got fifth um, I think I was about 15 seconds behind seventh to eighth, and just also just right behind Craig Watson and another New Zealander. So I was right there, but you know, unfortunately, you know, 15 seconds could have could have got it if if I had prepared for it. Maybe who knows? Um, yeah. But 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 anyway, put it beside me. Ben Ben was an outsider. He got a slot. There's two slots left. Hamish um, didn't didn't have a great first trial, um, and but he was definitely the guy I know the selectors wanted on the team, and fair enough, you know he's he's a, he's a legend of the sport, and that third spot was really the spot which I thought I really nailed down. Craig kind of threw a little bit of a, a spin in the works by just pipping me in Sydney. Um, 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 he went obviously went on from there and got linked first in the world the following year. So the talent was there. So nothing gets Craig. Um, but, the, but the final race in the World Championships, that was, that was my main goal. I can, can remember um, right after the Worlds, I did a 5K track session, like 10 days out. I think I ran like 14.30. I was in really good run shape. Mm. Um, and so I went to that race. You know, I had this decent enough swim. I wasn't the world's best swimmer, but kind of kind of got, got on the main pack. Um, and I can, I, I think you're probably in the pack. I think it was five guys out front, Marcel and a few other guys were out front. I think Hamish was maybe as well. Um, and then there's a big pack of guys. Um, I was in there. I think you, I think you could have been in there. Macca was in there. Um, and then basically I was being a bit of a, you know, I was I sat at the back the whole ride. I was a runner. I was playing my cards. Um, mm. But being not being a nice guy, coming right into the very last corner, I went right to the front of the pack so I could, so I could get off the bike first. Um, and it just started to rain. So we come in the, the, the last major corner and I, I slipped out. I crashed. Um, actually brought Craig Watson down with me because he was checking on my wheel. And a few other guys came down. So I crashed, got up, fixed my bike, kind of adjusted my wheel, got back on, rode into the area. I think it was about 46, 47 seconds behind the pack that, that I actually would have been. So I was down in 45th place. I then ran all the way through the field. I think me and Robbo had the equal fastest run time that day. I think Robbo got first or second that day in the end. Um, he was in the pack with us. Yeah. Um, I would have run, if I hadn't crashed, my run time would have given me a medal at the World Champs and definitely in the team. And I ran through to 11th place, one second off 10th place. I think you were right right there somewhere too. Um, mm. um, and then I thought, and then Craig Watson came down. He ended up getting 35th. I finished like five seconds behind Hamish, and I thought I'd, I thought from that performance I'd book my space. Um, I'd book my place in the team. Anyway, they they the slick, three sisters met together, decided we think it's going to be the games is going to be a swimmers race. And Jamie, your swimming is probably not quite as good as Craig's, um, so we're going to put Craig in the team ahead of you. It was a vote, a vote, a vote, um, two to one. 
Um, as it turned out, it turned out, turned out to be a complete runner's race. Um, someone who yeah. who won, someone who won it was living with me before the games. We were going head to head, you know, with um, and uh, and even the head Australian coach um, later said that I probably probably was with a real good shot of um of winning the medal. You know, had I been there, mm. um, um, you know, so. It, it, it does. I mean, that, that that story is almost somewhat of a mirror image of of my own going into two thousand. You know, that's that same kind of thing. And you, and you do you do sit back with sort of disappointment and, and a bit bewildered, kind of what happened. You know, when you when and uh, you know when you go all in on something. Um, and that's why I'm I'm a huge advocate for sort of aligning your passions with your strength and then pulling the trigger and going all in and taking a full responsibility yeah. for your life and everything else. And, and and it's difficult when you feel like, well, hang on, I kind of feel like I did it, but it was taken away anyway. And and yeah. and did that was that uh, the driving force for re- retiring from racing and the transition into the business world and entrepreneurship, or, or was it more than that? Yeah, yeah, it really was. I mean, I, I have to be honest. I think by that stage, um, I already had two children. Um, I got married when I was twenty-one. Um, you know, still married now. Twenty, I think twenty-eight years later now. Um, That's mate. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and and I already had two kids, and and I, I can remember. Um, I always said to my wife, um, by the time I turned thirty. Um, if I'm not making a good enough living that's going to see us through the rest of our lives. Before I had thirty, I'm going to have to retire um, mm. because you, when you get into your thirties, you kind of become pretty not going to say unhorrible, but you kind of uh, get in a position where someone's like, "Oh, you're already in your thirties; you probably passed your best." Um, so, so basically, um, I I kept racing that year, um, had an okay year, um, started the following year. My mind wasn't it. it was four years till next games. I, I mean, I got offered a spot to you know transition across to the UK team. And race for Scotland, and would have mean moving to Scotland for a year, and um, which my, my wife wasn't really keen on doing. Um, and so, so, and then at the start of two thousand and one, you mentioned the New Balance team. I lost my contract with them, and that that really it was a, it was a it was a salary that basically paid the bills and anything extra. Um, you know, it was great. So when I lost that, I was like, okay, now was the time. Um, I'm kind of have to going to have to give it away. Um, but to be honest with you, I talk about the Olympic Games, and I think actually one of the biggest blessings of my life actually was not making that Olympic Games team because um, I think I would I would have kept going and I would have missed mm. the opportunity to go into the business world. Um, I would have I would have probably waited for more years to next games. Um, I've been already in my, my early to mid thirties, you know. Um, so I actually now look back and had some real good chats with the select selectors, and they both they've all kind of said we kind of got it wrong, um, as such. Um, but look, look, it was it was it was their call, and, and they and I think they made the call they thought that was best. So you know, completely, you know, no no how no hard feelings towards them. Um, and as it turned out, it was it was probably probably a blessing in disguise. And so so and I I, I was burnt out too. I my mind wasn't anymore. Um, I thought about going into Ironman. I thought, man, I can't even do one three-hour ride a week, let alone do three or four three-hour rides a week. You know, so I, I, um, you know, so so that was definitely, um, you know, a good time for me to change. And then at the time, I was living on the Gold Coast. Um, my 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 best friend um, Scott Unsworth um, at the time um, owned the brand Orca, and he kind of came through and said, "Hey, look, Jamie, I know I, I know you got a degree, a background in economics." 
do you want to come on board and work for me and, and kind of move into the finance team? And I said, I'm on board. So basically within two weeks, we'd bought a house back in Auckland, um, sold a house on, on, the, on the Gold Coast, um, moved back home, um, set my wife back to work and and because um, I was on, on about 30 grand a year, <laughs> you, know, you know, starting at the very, very bottom. Um, and, and our third kid was on the way too. So it was it was really the time, you know, it was worked out really well. So went back in there. Um, basically spent about four to five weeks in the finance team. Absolutely hated it. You know, I was doing I was bank, rec- say. <laughs> bank reconciliations the whole time. I know you got background in accounting, so you know background. And you know, back. You know, I was doing bank reconciliations, and then, then basically um, about four or five weeks after I started, the head, the head production person, the head of product, basically had an argument with Scott, um, the owner of Orca, and said, "Look, I'm out of here." and and so I sat down with Scott. He was a bit upset. And he goes, he goes, we have to put a range out in about 10 weeks' time. And he goes, he goes, I just don't, I've got to be here. And I said, Scott, I know nothing at all about production, but I know what athletes want. Um, and I, I know I know what I would want to wear. And so basically, I, um, he goes, okay, the job's yours. So he goes, basically, you're on a plane tomorrow. He actually sat down and we spent like he spent three hours trying to educate me in fabrics. And I look back on it now; he didn't know very much. Um, but, but um, basically, basically in those days, we'd be manufactured mostly in Portugal and Italy um, because of quotas into China and everything else too. And so, basically, I went and spent the next basically eight to ten weeks in China, threw together a collection, but instantly fell in love with fabrics. Fell in love with the mechanics, the fibers, the structures, the gauges, just basically took my love and passion of triathlon and put it into fabrics and just building really great products. And, you know, I basically oh. took my competitive nature from being an athlete and took it into the sport and, and into the fabric and, and business world and um, this real tenacious drive to just be the best in that, you know. And um, so, so basically created this collection. I remember I flew with about five five big suitcases, I think, I think a conference where basically you develop a range, you go to like a, a, a international sales conference, handed all the samples. So basically I got up and I took them through the collection. As it turned out, I think we sold three times more of that collection than we sold of any other clothing collection ever before what? at Orca. So it was wow. a real success. And I kind of found my my calling in life, um, my next calling in my next season of my life, and that was in, the, in, in, in making high-performance sports apparel. Um, it is really yeah. incredible, incredible story. I mean, very few of us get to live out one passion, uh, you know, and then to, for you to, to find another passion and then live it out like you did is really quite incredible because I really believe high performance starts with passion. It doesn't matter. You can have hard work. You can talk about all these things, but hard work is fueled with passion. You know what I mean? And it's, it's yeah. like you were able to have passion for this endurance sport of triathlon and take it all the way to basically you should have been on the Olympics and that level. Within months, it seems, I don't know, maybe you've missed some time there, but it seems like <laughs> yeah. missed the Olympic team. Hang on, here's, a, here's another door open. But how much of it was it being prepared to just allow yourself to be ready for that opportunity? I mean, you went to Scott's door and knocked and said, hey, mate, I, I'm an athlete myself. Why don't you let me be a part of the yeah. production? It was like this ability to be open to opportunity. And you, you said you were able to transfer the skills from sport to business to something. What do you mean by that? What, what exactly were you able to sort of transfer over? Oh, you know what I mean? Like you, you used the word passion and I think that's one probably an adjective that's probably used a lot when people talk about me. I'm a very passionate, highly, 
energetic. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a goal, goal setter. And I, and that's, and I think I took, I took the passion that I had for one thing into then to the other. And I think I did a lot of it out of ignorance. I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, and I, I think often in life, that's the way. And, and I often yeah. hear people say, people come to me and, and say, I've got this passion that I, you know, I, I want to do this. And I've been thinking about it for years and, you know, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? And look, and sometimes there is passion and there's no logic behind the business they want to go into. But I'm like, look, you know, in our business, and when we started Two Times You, we always said passion has the right of way. If you're passionate about something you want to do, we're going to support you in that passion. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, and, and look, I mean, and but yeah, obviously you have to have logic behind the passion too, but I just carried the passion through and hopped in the airplane not knowing what I was doing at all. Um, but and again, you know, really, um, I, the factories always said to me, no one ever asked the amount of questions that you asked. I was just always wanting to learn about, you know, why do they do that? Why do they do this? And and I think I got to a point pretty quickly where I knew the basics good enough, um, you know. And, and then I and then I applied the logic always. Would I would I want to wear this, you know, product if I was racing, or you know, would this make sense to me if I was racing? And you know, and I've, you know, so I basically, you know, took took the a marketing thinking always into the product that I was building, and I think that was one of the things I carried from Orca even across the two times year. I was, whenever I was making a product, I was always thinking, so how do we voice this in a communication way when it comes to marketing this product? You know, would I believe this marketing? Would I believe this product was the best? And and so I think I, I came into this product development perspective with an athlete's mindset with that also a real marketing mindset too um but it sounds like a it sounds like a little bit of a kiwi australian attitude too where we we almost start cynical and then you have to prove us why it works whereas i feel in the u.s here it's (laughs) like you 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 can come out with a product and it goes oh yeah that sounds pretty good i'll give it a go whereas in australia i feel like australians and kiwis we're kind of like no we're going to start cynical and you better prove me and and Uh, 100 100%. oh that's mine you know and and you know and um we'll probably get into a bit later on but it's one of the reasons why i'm actually relocating for, for the next brand that I start. I mean, I love New Zealand. I love Australia. And But even when we started two times you in Australia, everyone thought we were, we were a US brand. I think that probably helped that probably helped our growth because they thought they probably were better than what we were because <laughs> it seems to be in New Zealand and Australia, if you are a local brand, you've got to, you've got to prove yourself more, you know. And, and, and honestly, New Zealanders and Australians, we, I mean, no offense to the uh, listeners from other countries out there, but we have to prove ourselves more. I mean, our market is so small, so we need to build better products. Our, you know, we've, we've got to be better marketers. We we can't rely on population based to win. You know, and I see some products in other parts of the world, and I go, how do that company make make so much money? You know, there's some brands. There's one brand in the UK. I'm not going to mention who they are, but massively successful gymwear brand. And I look at their marketing and their product, and I go, how did how are they now worth a billion dollars? You know, because that was New Zealand. We wouldn't even get off the ground. You know, know, it's it's like, so we have to prove ourselves so much harder down here. And, but one thing I will say is that we've got such a great amount of talent down here. Um, And, you know, and, and so much so that I'm I'm really relocating to the UK next year to start my next brand. And I'm taking my whole New Zealand office with me because, you know, the talent that I've got down here, they are such talented people here in New Zealand. And I'm sure in Australia is the same way too, you know. 
so talented. Um, is, you know, is it talent or is it, is it, is it talent or is it hunger? Is it passion? Is it, is it work ethic? Is it all of those things? What, oh, yeah, what do you I'm mean sure, by talent? I'm sure it's all those things, but I mean, I, I think that if the talent that I have in my office, if, if we we're in a bigger country, that would already probably be with the big brands, probably already earning three or four times than what they're currently earning. So hopefully they're not the systems of this podcast. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but I mean, and I'm sure when I, when I, when I, sure when I get to London, they're going to be, you know, headhunted. But you know what? I think the talent they have, I'll be paying three or four times more for them there. But I also feel like they're willing and open to learn. They they haven't, and actually most of them actually don't even have them been to university, to be honest. They, they're coming in with this really fresh mindset and perspective and going, you know, just, you know, it's fantastic. And you know, I think one thing I learned at two times you, you've, you've got to give these young guys as much autonomy as you can so they can really feel like they're really contributing. And that's how we hang on to talent for a really long time at two times. You, we, like I said, before we gave them the right away, we, we said, if you're passionate about it, we'll let you, we'll let you follow through with that. But again, I mean, look, there's talent everywhere, but I think I'm just, I'm just really excited about my team here in New Zealand. And, um, you know, and um, I'm excited about the things, things, the things that we can actually achieve. You know, well, so. I mean, it's, it's great leadership, mate. It's like, you know, you, you're recognizing them for one and i think all of us love to be recognized it doesn't matter what level you are in a company if you can be recognized that's just fantastic and then like you said you're giving them this huge array of autonomy where they're allowed to go and you're going to listen to them i mean that's any corporation that's going to allow doesn't matter what position you're in but you're going to be heard from the the top executives i mean you're going to blossom it's going to be successful. Yes. I mean, yes. it's great leadership. It really is. Now, I want to backtrack a little bit. I mean, you talk yeah. about moving to the UK and everything. I, I want to get there. But yeah. before we do, <laughs> before we do, you had a number of years at Orca. I feel like that was almost, was that like getting your degree? It was like your education. And then, yeah. and then what happened in this next stage and this entrepreneurial, Absolutely. okay, I'm, I'm going to well, do it on my own? Well, we, um, I mean, like, you know, we, um, I was at Orca like three and a half, four years. So I always say it was completely my, my, my uh, apprenticeship. And, you know, obviously when I left, you know, Scott wasn't happy, but I'm always very thankful that I had the opportunity to really learn the game. Um, you know, you know, I mean, the triathlon game somewhat, obviously Orca was more of a triathlon, but in New Zealand, actually, it was like a, in 2004, we actually um, built the whole collection for the New Zealand Olympic team, Olympic team. Uh, for all sports. So we in New Zealand, we were actually quite a decent-sized business, um, more than just triathlon. Um, you know, we were across all facets. And um, But, you know, I was getting to a point in time, you know, um, where, you know, I, I, was, I ran the production and the sales and ran the big chunk of the company pretty much. And there was never an opportunity uh, that was made clear to me that I would be an owner one day, that, 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 that I'd have any ownership in it. Um, which is fine, you know. Every business owner has that prerogative they can work to. Um, but so basically, an opportunity came along um, where a guy from Australia came along. Um, if you're an Australian, listen to this podcast. Um, Davenport Underwear was his background. He did license for Calvin Klein and um, Looney Tune ties, Looney Tune boxer shorts. You know, he made he, he made a bit of an empire out of doing that. Um, and he'd sold his business, and he basically came across myself and um, a marketing um, sales guy as well, um, Aiden Clark, and, and he'd heard about and met me once. I took him through my philosophy on product, and, and basically he said to me and Aiden, hey, look, guys, do you want to move to Australia? We'll start a high-performance sports brand. Um, you guys can almost decide what sports you want to go into. Wow. Um, 
And so basically we said, yeah. So 2005, we packed our bags, you know, you know, um, got our, you know, moved our kids across to Australia and started this brand from scratch called Two Times You. Um, it, happened, it happened so quick, mate. I yeah. I remember you taking me to, where was it, in Melbourne there, I can't remember the name of the suburb, Yeah, to a store that was already blossoming with some yeah. of the best gear. Laura and I, were, my wife Laura, as you know, uh, we still yeah. have so much of that original gear. When you took us into the store <laughs> and said, guys, yeah. you can grab some pieces or whatever you said to us. Yeah, yeah. And we were just like, you know, kids in a candy store. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was 2006. And we still have that gear, by the way. We still have that gear and we love it. I mean, that's good (laughs) stuff. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. but No, no, sure, no. No, you're right. I mean, pretty much the deal was Clyde said to me, Jamie, I want to range you out. Um, He goes, I've got this store. It's in Hawthorne, um, which is is a suburb of Melbourne. Um, And he said, I've got this underwear store. And by October, I want you to build me a whole collection and have it in that store. Wow. Um, so basically, I, I basically spent like the early orchid, I spent the next, by the stage, it was in most in China um, and Italy with fabrics. I said, look, basically went, went there and spent the next 10 months getting, getting this product to make. So by October, we basically built a triathlon line, a run line, and a cycle line. And I look back on that day and I look back at the products we had. We actually had some products even today I would be really, really proud to put out there. Um, they you know, are, I, mate. I, that that yeah. winter jacket, the winter jack yeah. cycling jacket yeah. that you guys had is yeah. one of the best ones I had. Yeah. And I've had some of the best cycling brands sponsor me towards the end of my career. And it was phenomenal yeah. stuff. Yeah. Sorry, well, yeah. go on. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, for example, I, I developed this run T-shirt and, and basically, I, it's four different fabrics in this run t-shirt. This is 2005. And basically, I built, you know, I built a sweat zone in the top part of the top that was a really, really super high moisture wicking. We did a thing called denier and filament grading. And then I would have, that fabric was a bit harsh on the inside because you want to maximize moisture. So I, I made a slightly low, high filament on the inside to make it a bit softer, like around the chest area, so you didn't have chafed nipples and still real good moisture management. I did the silver First guy I ever did put silver into a fabric and I put it under, under the arms so it didn't smell. And on the back, I developed this 3D mesh textured top. So it was a four different fabrics in this run top. And and what was what, what, what was a great story? Basically, I can remember me and Aiden hopped on an airplane. Maybe it was about August September, and we and we had um, actually the store. The store Nitro was really keen to be our distributors before we even launched. Um, so I actually went up to Nitro and showed them our collection and. And at the same time, we went and we went and visited like fifteen of the no, actually twenty odd of the biggest run stores in America. And we went in and basically before we even showed the product, we were talked through the philosophy of the brand. You know, we are high performance, high end. In those days, Nike and Adidas were doing a lot more of the fashiony kind of like iconic heritage collection. So we just spoke this pure, pure performance um, angle. Um, and I remember we went to these stores, and I think I think we saw like twenty five stores, whatever it was. And I can remember at the end of that trip, on we, we twenty four of those twenty five stores put orders in for our our run our run range, um, wow. and the and the twenty fifth store put an order in like three months later. Um, and 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 at, at that time too, though this new um, category called compression came along, and there's a big brand in Australia called Skins, which I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with. Um, they came up with this compression collection, and I kind of had a look at them. I sit with my background in, in fabric and said, "Look, they're probably 
they're using a warp knit, probably should be using a circle knit. And um, so basically, we spent that first year too building this really great compression range. They were first to market, so they had real traction. And but basically, you know, over the first three or four years of of of, uh, of two times you, we I think within two years we were the world's biggest triathlon brand. It was instant. I think by year three, we were three times bigger than the next biggest one. Um, and then cycle range was well, like you said, jackets sold. I remember that, that, that bike tech you told it, you spoke about in Japan. I think we did 25,000 units in our first year of that bike jacket. So, you know, it sold really well. Um, and, then, and then compression was there kind of in behind triathlon. And we keep saying it's going to come. This category is going to launch. By this stage, we had about 35 distributors around the world. Um, by year two, you know, we were profitable. I think by year four or five, by year four and five, we were Australia's fastest growing company. Um, and we just completely took off, um, you know, and went from, you know, you know, I think by year seven or eight, we did 20, 30 million profit. Um, and, you know, so we just enormous growth and we just really stuck to the mantle that, you know, we don't apologize for the price, even though I believe our products had real value for money. And the point is, you're still wearing it today. We used great fabrics, not not actually all sourced from Italy. I mean, actually, what I what I became, you know, a real, real skill set in the end was just taking these amazing Italian fabrics, going to Taiwan, going to Korea, even going to China, sourcing the yarns, having them knitted um, and dyed in, in Asia, and every bit as good, if not better, than what, what the originals actually were and managed to get it at a price point that was actually really, really good price points. Mm. Um, but basically, built this re- and, and, but our language, I mean, in year one, you know, basically every product I had had its own swing tag with like a line drawing with, with diagrams going to each of the panels explaining why that panel has that fabric. Um, so really going into really minute details in the product. And guys like me, because I'm a real A-type personality, I thought that's exactly what I would want to see and read in a product um, if I was going to buy it, you know. So, um, so that thinking really carried us through. And, you know, I think by year six and seven, I think we had almost every NBA team in the U.S. Um, was wearing our product. Um, you know, LeBron James was one of our biggest fans, even though he was with Nike, and you can see multiple images of, of him through ESPN magazines. Actually, I, I actually even saw an image of him coming home from the NBA finals a few weeks ago, still wearing our two-time Duke compression socks, you know, not, mm. um, <laughs> so still a fan, um, you know, but, um, but, but basically we just had this, this just passion to build the best product. And we, we spoke about, you know, uh, moisture management ratings and, and how we constructed these fabrics. And we just went to the next level and explaining why our products were better. And and honestly, most of the time they they really really were better. And obviously, I've sold two times you now. And um, but to this day, I look back and we really had world world leading products in all the sports, even cycling, for example. And the hard part of cycling is that most cyclists don't want to buy into what was perceived as a compression slash triathlon brand. But so many of the guys that I know that are great cyclists out there said, you know, we you know we love your bike here, you know. So look, really really proud of um of that and you know the first eight to nine years of two times you when when the, the three of us still had complete ownership of the business it was a great was a great great ride you know we had a lot it, of fun it's, i can hear the passion in your voice were, were you guys every now and then just sort of sitting back and going can you believe what's happening was it did it feel real that the the way that i mean obviously you were all working incredibly hard obviously you were focused on product-led 
rather than yeah. marketing led. It was really yeah. about product. But but was it still somewhat of a surprise at, at the the way it just took off with its legs? Yeah, you know what? I don't think we actually took enough time to celebrate the success. Um, mm. You know, we we were so just in this massive amount of 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 um, going nonstop. I mean, like I like I think for at least twelve years. I had 200 days a year when I was away from my family, you know, normally wow. on airplanes, normally in Europe. And, you know, we were so just this growth was just so huge and being based down in, in Melbourne, Australia to get anywhere takes forever, you know. And, and, um, and so, you know what, I could have enjoyed it more. I mean, I think, you know, um, you know, I'm really open about my mental health and, and during that time of just spending years and years of traveling and, you know, I probably didn't sit back enough and take time to enjoy it. And I actually ended up spiraling, you know, into depression because I was just so manic in my in the way I lived my life. And as you can tell, I'm a passionate person. And I just went 24-7 for all those years. And I probably would have enjoyed it more if I wasn't just, you know, um, you know, wasn't on the road so much just, you know, and, and honestly, it wasn't even about the money. We just wanted to build a great brand, and the money was always money was always just a a byproduct. And but we honestly, we never had time to. I think I think I think um, you know, this stage, you know, we were making you know millions of dollars a year each, and I think I, st- I still owned a, I still had a Vita Polo. I mean, I just didn't have time to buy a car. I was just always just traveling and <laughs> and going for it, you know. And I didn't really have time to sit back and even have. You know, we try to have a really good family holiday every year, but even then, I was always on my phone or on my computer, and mm. and my, and my kids, my kids really did miss out a lot on me during those years, um, and, and my wife too. I've got the most incredibly loyal, amazing wife, and I think very few wives would have put up with with my with my lifestyle and traveling, and and, and my children too, who are you know got three great kids. A quick mini break, I really want to encourage you to do something special for yourself and sign up to Athletic Greens and get a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase by visiting athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I just want to stay on point for yes. a little bit on 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 this compression business yeah, now yeah for many listeners i feel i don't know this is actually just a something i've noticed since i left the sport probably four or five years ago i'm still obviously involved in and watch it but it feels like the compression was really big there for a while yeah. obviously with two times you leading the way and a number of other brands bringing out their own yeah. trying to bring out their own and then it, does it feel like to you it's faded off and before even answering that what are the benefits? Are, are we missing something by not having compression on us? You know, sell me on why we should be having compression for a starter. Yeah, yeah, great, great question and observation, Greg. I mean, you know, I mean, first of all, the benefits. You know, I've, I think at two times we probably spent two to three million dollars on compression research. Um, you know, so we, you know, with, with the AAS partnership, we had full time sports scientists just full time doing studies for us and. You know, a lot haven't even come out because it takes years to get white papers out of them, you know. And But there's absolutely no doubt um, in many facets of compression. And, again, I say compression, the right compression. I think that's one of the mm. – I'll, I'll get into the point later about why it's maybe faded out a little bit. You know, if you are wearing true compression, the benefits, I hand on heart 100% multiple benefits, particularly 
when it comes to recovery, particularly when it comes to injury prevention. I'm not going to put my hand on my heart and say 100% for every athlete out there, if you wear compression while you're racing, you're going to go faster. I won't say that because there is science around, I believe, that it says that it does. But it isn't. That wouldn't be the true benefits. Why you wear compression? You wear it. You wear it to, to support your muscles. Less oscillation, less muscle damage, less muscle soreness, less swelling of the muscles, better recovery, faster warm up through increased blood flow. Multiple areas around the injury and injury prevention, muscle support to to minimise overuse injuries, whether it be with running or with golf or whatever sport you might you may play. Um, aligning the muscles so there's much better power output. I mean, the first words of compression was actually in weightlifting when they when they wore compression around their legs um, to help cock the muscles for firing, which is much faster than having muscles that are relaxed and, and non-cocked, so greater power output. Uh, and then obviously recovery, which I think recovery, you know, it goes without saying. It's been in the medical field now for a very long time. Um, it goes without, you know, um, the fact that it, it helps you recover faster, um, mm. you know. Um, but definitely for, you know, gym workouts, um, you know, for recovery, for running, for muscle injury prevention. I mean, I, I now, I'm, I'm now 48 years old um, um, and I still, um, you know, even last year I still competed relatively quite competitively in an Ironman. I know that. If I didn't wear compression, I'd even wear two to three layers around my calves sometimes just to support them because otherwise my calves just tear, break down, fall apart. Um, basically, compression holds me together now. Um, you know, <laughs> and, and it really does. And, and even going for 5K runs, um, probably still need it, you know. And so definitely when you're getting older, 100% advocate. I mean, most guys that have worn two times you, and I'll say two times you, or maybe have worn CEP compression socks, great brand. Um, but there's not many brands out there that actually offer true compression. And and I think that's one of the reasons why um, it's fallen away somewhat. Um, people out there have been introduced to compression, which isn't true compression. Many brands out there have just got a, got a, got a swimwear fabric, added the word compression to it, and sold it as compression, and then they've not noticed any real benefits. Um, and that ultimately has been the demise to compression. I mean, if you can go into um, Amazon right now, type, type in compression tights, and you will probably find a thousand pairs of compression tights, all for under forty dollars. That that's not compression. I mean, compression you need you need it to be hitting MMHG ratings of up in the twenties. Yeah. Um, you know, even high if it's more of a support level for graduate for graduate compression, you want it to be up in the high to mid to high twenties. And honestly, at two times you, when we tested, whenever a new brand came out, we'll grab it and we'll test it on our Salzman device. And I would say 85% of compression wasn't graduated, even though they said they were. Probably 70% of it wasn't, didn't have high enough ratings to actually offer decent enough support um, you know, when it came to support of, of the muscle group. So it really wasn't compression. And so many brands just put the compression name on a product and charge $10 Fifteen dollars more for it um, than it should have been priced and sold it. So, I think. So to answer your question, is it around as much? You know what? I still see a lot. I mean, here in you know, I mean, I, I live in Auckland and I live I'm, like I live on the waterfront here, and I would say every second or third runner is still wearing compression socks. Um, I think here in New Zealand, compression <laughs> there's still a lot of compression wearers down here um, because yeah. they because they have been lucky enough. We're two times you. Um, 
here in New Zealand is by far the dominant brand in endurance sports. I think Skins definitely got a foothold in the in the football sports, but definitely um, here and here in New Zealand, it's still a very heavily compressioned at our market because most people are wearing two times you. And again, I'm not I'm not no longer part of two times you, but we did build a really good compression product. And mm-hmm. and um, but unfortunately, in America and other parts of the world, other brands that are coming out don't really have the benefits of a product as good as two times you. Um, you so that's you know, probably why it's fallen away. You've talked about a number of brands there. I remember Laura and I living in Victoria, Canada back in 2001 had heard about this compression thing and we had to go to a place where an old person's kind of you know, shop where you buy your walking frames and, and everything else. And we had to get measured for compression socks and stockings. Yeah. And we just wanted them for for travel. We, we'd heard about this, you know, deep vein thrombosis and we wanted yeah. to make sure we had, you know, some kind of – and so we had to have them actually custom made for us. And this is in 2001, not that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then we found a brand called – tell me if this brand's any good because we do kind of use them sometimes, Sigvaris. Yeah, uh, and they were like a medical brand. Are they any good? I mean, or did they not have graduated compression? That no, no, specific no, training. No, 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 no. They they're very good. I I think when it comes to compression socks, um, Sigvaris, Sigvaris obviously is actually a medical hosiery company, um, and I, I'm actually familiar with whether where they're made and a lot of their factories. They they actually are a really really good company. So they do make a really good compression sock. Um, as does there's um, there's a few more out there. Obviously, CP is the sports one. Um, but there's definitely a few medical medical hosiery based companies that do actually make really good compression socks. And I think out there there's actually is a lot more decent compression socks than what there is compression tights, for example. And I think um, the socks market um, does have some have some strong brands, but in, in, the, in the tights market, you know, it's it's not it's, if you if you most of the good compression hosiery companies that they've access to. Um, there's two or three brands of um, knitting, um, com- you know, compression hosiery machines out that you can buy. If you've got a good technician and you, and you know the yarns really well and how you draft the yarns, it's not nearly as difficult to create a great pair of graduated compression socks. But when it comes to, fa- to making the fabrics and cutting and sewing them like in the tights, like what, what we did in Tutu and what Skins did, in, for example, um, that's a lot, lot harder. I mean, your multiple body shapes. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, getting the right, getting the right kind of power in a fabric light enough that you can still wear for sport. And I think that's where two and times not too two, hot, right? I mean, and exactly, hot, not too hot, one, right? Exactly. Yeah, and there's yeah, so many brands yeah. out there. I mean, there's a few brands out there, another few other strong brands out there, which which actually made quite good tights with good power, but they were so hot and mm-hmm. so heavy when they got wet, they wouldn't wet moisture very well. So what we did at two times you is that we managed to make. An extremely powerful fabric, but still super lightweight and super flexible. And that's that's the almost a quandary when you get more power, normally it weighs a lot more. So we managed to get this really fine tune um, on our knitting machines, fine tune. And I, I know, for example, Under Armour spent years trying to copy our fabric, and and they couldn't copy it. And because we just tinkered with the um, knitting machines for years, just to get exactly, we, we developed heads for the machines, which we were unique, and and we just really really you know had a real art and how to make compression fabric um and that's how it, how we really really stayed ahead of the pack and 
you know, still today until until next year. Um, two times a year, I believe it's, it's still the best compression brand out there. All <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> well, well, okay. Let's let's we'll, talk about that. We'll get to that I mean, soon if you want to. But I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, I'm curious as as to this next this next sort of phase. I mean, the the exit strategy from from two yeah. times you, you your baby, you you're emotional, you're passionate about it. I mean that. How was that deciding? Okay, we're we're going to take this. Was it an offer that came to you guys, and you guess it was an offer yeah. too good to refuse? You just had to, kind of thing. Well, there was it was it was actually three phases. I mean, we we actually sold first of all twenty percent of the business. I mean, even though we're profitable, um, we didn't really need the money to build the business. Clyde said to us, um, "Let's take some money off the table now. If something happened and the world fell apart, you know, at least take some money off the table." So basically, we we sold twenty yeah. percent, which is great because we actually we were able to go and buy a nice house and you know kind of kind of you know take back some of the stuff which we'd gone without for so many years you know and and then and then so we did, did that probably in year eight or nine and then um and then right when we were, we were doing we were very profitable and you know our track at this at, at, at this place we were tracking from start to we were like in about year eight or nine we were tracking faster than what Under Armour and Little Lemon was I mean like we were just on this massive curve and doing it from Australia made it even more impressive I mean like you know we didn't have the scale we were yeah, I always say it's very easy to own your backyard, but to go and take another backyard of someone else is so much harder because in your own backyard, you know people, you, you can just just the, the the filtration of the brand so much easier in your home market. And so, you know, we spoke about a lot to go and live in the US if we didn't want to do, but but around this time, basically, um, basically four or five equity companies, um, one of what's just missed out on on buying Lily Lemon, so they, they were one of them, so we bid four I think it was four or five. We'll say four for now. Um, come to us, and basically we said, "Look, we're in, we're in Melbourne. Here's two days. You, you, each of you get two or three hours each. Come and pitch to us why we should sell you part of our business." So we were selling for a forty percent share. Oh no, oh no, sorry, with a percent share. Uh, I can't remember what it was at this stage. It was a forty percent share um, at this stage. Um, you know, come, come and tell us why. So basically, they all came. Um, a few Boston-based ones, uh, and Al Catadin, which is part of the LVMH group, um, who, who instantly today own Pinarello, and obviously they own a ton of other. They, they just just sold Aaron Williams and um, and, a few, and Sue Foley and some other brands, but um, um, also own Sweetie Betty and, and uh, I think Roan as well. And so you know, quite active in that space. They came and. Um, and they were the one that basically pitched us, you know, we'll help you grow outside, um, we'll help you grow outside uh, Australia and to, and to more to Asia because we already were quite strong in Europe and the States. Um, and they actually offered us probably, you know, a, a large amount more than more than the other company offered us. So we so we sold 40% of the business. But at this stage, you know, they, they you know, we said, look, you can be quite a lot more involved in running the company, you know. And so they said, look, to us three founders, you guys have done a great job up until now, fantastic job. We're going to bring a guy down from Adidas in Germany to run the business. And so basically, you know, we're going to appoint the first CEO of Two Times Year. At this stage, me and Aiden basically ran the company. I basically ran the, the product and the production and the supply chain and, and, and Aiden ran the sales and marketing. Um, and as I said, so he flew down and, you know, um, you know, very, you know, won't say who he is, um, but a um, very corporate. Um, and basically, this company went from being this entrepreneurial run, make decisions off your cuff, 
you know, because by that stage, you know, we we knew what worked and didn't work, and we made decisions off the cuff. Just you know, just do it. You know, kind of mentality, and you know, we would work out in our heads. You know, it'll cost us this, and yeah, yeah, let's do it. You know, and and we knew our distributors really well too, and we knew it would work. So basically, from that to being this market, that a brand would even stopped. Um, mm. You know, I, I lost I lost control of the of the product team. Um, and basically just stopped. Uh, we stopped innovating as much. We um, really, the handbrake got put on. Everything had to go by committee. Um, and that really started to make me start to really lose my passion in what we were doing. Uh, it's like, you know, it's like, did you feel like it was a, I mean, I, I hear this conversation of where we're at now. And if you go back yeah. to 2000 and the New Zealand Federation comes in and yeah. tells you you're not going to be, you know, you got to answer to this federation. They're going to choose the yeah. Olympics. It, it's taken out of your yeah. hands. And then it's a little yeah. bit, hang on, fast forward 15 years. <laughs> yeah. And here am I loving what I'm doing, incredibly passionate, but we're yeah. going to put a CEO in place and you're going to have to answer to him. And it's, yeah. it's almost like, here we go again. It Does it feel like that a bit? You <laughs> know, well, I probably didn't draw the two parallels, but you're completely right. Um, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah, yeah, you know, I think it was a bit more of a kick in the guts a little bit. Yeah. Um and um and all it did, like I spoke to you, to you earlier about, you know, you want to empower your people, and um and I felt like I was majorly disempowered, even though I was still an owner and the new CEO wasn't. You know, we we the three of us still had, you know, they had along with the first equity partner, which was really on our our side somewhat. Um, you know, they um they um you know we still really ran the company, and yet I was being told I couldn't do things and. You know, and I, I, that made it hard. Made me want to do go look on these trips. And around around this time too, my my wife and my um, my wife, you know, love Australians to bits. But my wife said, I don't want our, our kids to grow up as Australians. And by this stage, they knew the Australian national anthem, didn't know the New Zealand national anthem, <laughs> um, and they started to say dance rather than dance, and that killed me. <laughs> um, and um, so, you know, like, so we decided to, um, my wife decided, you know, to, to move back home with the kids and, and, um, and basically I would, I would come home for the weekends. Um, and so with this happening, my family at home, um, you know, it kind of started to be the start of the end for me, um, you know, and, re- and not would say that it was, it was the start of the end pretty much. And so basically fast forward. You know, production started to slow down, got people on board, even in the product team. I probably didn't see eye to eye with. Um, it was becoming less and less product focused and more and more marketing focused because the innovation just wasn't happening like it used to happen. Um, but compression was always there, but I guess it was more the, more the other segments. Um, and so I guess over the next so many years, it started to unwind um, my passion. And then probably four years later, probably around, um, Year, probably four years later, so probably about year 13, 14 other brands. Um, I was, I've been commuting now for five years. Um, flew, flew up Monday morning, flew home Thursday night. Absolutely, and then probably every fourth, third or fourth week, I was in Asia or in Europe or in the States, um, at trade shows and everything else too. I was exhausted, and um, mm. and at, at, at this stage, my other business partner, um, Aiden, had got and started uh, another brand, was not really in the business anymore. Um, and then I just really starting to lose my drive and passion, and, and and around the same time we're starting to do um, some some collabs with with Yeezy um, up in the states. Um, and then during that time, I'd got to do some work one on one with 
with with Kanye West, um, and um, you know we we really got on pretty well. And you know there'd be a whole lot of judges out there, but you know been very very sweet guy. You know um, got to know him really well, and and then he offered me the role to basically head up head up the brand Yeezy. Um, so at this stage, I was basically three or four days a week. I was in LA at Yeezy, or two or three days a week. I was in, in two times a year, and then another day a week, I was back home. It was just a massive amount of time. And finally, through through multiple events, um, I decided I didn't probably want to go and live in LA and probably uh, and work work with Kanye um, because it, it wasn't a structure. You know, it was obviously it was all over the place. Yeezy was, um, you know, a great brand, but you know difficult guy to work for in many levels um but so then i came home and said look suzanne to my wife look I've, I've, i'm just over it and and this is exactly the time the brand was starting to really not perform that well and um and so basically along came lvmh so well cut it and said look you know why don't we, we, we buy you guys out and we and i was like you yeah, bring it on so so that happened um, uh, in two weeks' time. It was two years ago, um, and I had a two-year restricted trade placed upon me. Oh, I was so, wondering when that when that yeah. Was so <laughs> yeah, so yeah, and, and you know, great, you know, in, in fairness to Al Cadden, it wasn't a, a real tenuous um, restricted trade, and you know, and yeah, I'm really grateful, you know, to them um, for not making it five years, and then else it was two years. Um and um and so basically it expires on the December the nineteenth. It expires. Um. So um. Yeah. So so yeah. So I basically um turned down the opportunity easy. Sold two times you, and then December um, two thousand and eighteen. Basically was unemployed, and so I said to my wife, "Hey, I um." I've never done New Zealand Ironman. I've been really keen to do New Zealand Ironman. So basically, spent the next five months training like a, like a professional athlete, and um, but basically, basically trained every day with Cameron Brown. You know, um, you know, I've been you know close to Cameron. He was actually one of the groomsmen at my wedding, you know, twenty seven years ago, and um, spent every day training with Cameron, and and um, basically spent six six months like 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 a pro athlete, and did did New Zealand Ironman. Um, March last year did did super well. Um, got second overweight group and we about age group by half an hour. Thirteenth overall went nine oh two, and it was great. But then I did almost did so well. I was like, okay, kind of tick that off now. Um, you know, like like what's next? So so really from then just started to plan um, my next brands and um, and uh, and. I, I really wanted to start off with doing a triathlon brand because I, I, I love triathlon, but it's actually already a really competitive field. Not a lot of guys are actually making any money in the field. There's probably too many ex-athletes coming and doing it or, or you know, and um, it's not really a profitable, that profitable business. And so I decided, look, I kind of need to go back into the compression field. And, and I, and, but I know I know the compression customer really well, and I feel like they, with the way two times you had headed skins had basically gone to liquidation. I went about developing a whole new kind of compression, and um, and um, and I feel like I'm onto real winners. So I started that like um, started a long, long time ago, um, and um, and um, and basically lucky lucky that I did because you know come March this year we went we went, went into lockdown um, mm-hmm. and so basically I um you know 
I couldn't go to the factories anymore, and uh, and so it put a put a big strain. But in the meantime, you know, um, you know, just keep building this brand from lockdown, which has been really really hard. And as of as of um, start of next year, I'm I'm going to launch this brand. And and luckily enough for me, many of the two times you distributors over the last two years had had disengaged selling two times you in their market, so picked up a whole chunk of them. Um, and so basically launching already with a really strong European distribution, strong distribution in Asia, and brought on one of my best mates in the US um, to help me um, do the US market. So really, really excited oh, about, about that's that. That's awesome. So, what, what, can yeah. you tell me the name of the brand yet or yeah, have yeah. you got to wait for launch? Yeah. No, it's fine. No, the, the brand's called Prezio, P-R-E-S-S-I-O, so Prezio.com. Okay. Um, to click on there, there's a there's a countdown sequence, but really targeting targeting compression, but also really targeting the run market. Like I, you know, deep down as you know, Greg, running was mm. was my passion. I mm. started off being a runner. Even to this day, I wish I could run a, a lot more than what I do. Um, um, you know, but I can't because I might get injured really easily. But um, I love the running market, and I feel like in the cycling market, there's been so many great hip brands come through. Obviously. Rafa came with, with a starting element and obviously the brands like Map and Black Sheep and Attacker, a lot of really great brands came through, but it's not been that many great, innovative, cool run brands come through. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I yeah. mean, there's a brand in the US that I, you know, that that make, that has a great marketing, um, you know, brand called Tracksmith that I kind of, I really like their, their marketing perspective. Obviously, brands like Rowan, which are more like a Lululemon kind of brand, but not really, not really been innovative. So I'm making this, real amazing run brand with amazing fabrics which wick moisture as good as anything out there but is completely sustainable so ah. and so my, my brand is based on sustainability as well so you know all my all my ratings mmhg ratings performance wicking of moisture everything is world leading but it's i made it much harder by making it, um the, the fabrics recyclable eco dye yarns and so I really want to be the world's first real high achieving, great looking brand, be run and compression. It also has a real sustainability platform to it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think a lot of guys can go and start brands with not much experience, but probably nobody could do what I'm doing. Um, it didn't have the experience that I have. I mean, you know, I've, I've fabricated all new fabrics, extruded new types of um, recycled yarns that I can actually do this. So, I'm really excited about um, our, our marketing angle. Um, you know, our, our website's going to be kick-ass. Um, right. but, you know, <laughs> so I'm really, really, I'm really, really excited about it. So look, so so March, April next year, um, hopefully March, not April, um, this brand's going to go live. And, and, and in the US, for example, it's going to be purely online uh, for the first year. Europe will be a, probably a more of a, um, we might be in a few stores. But I really want to experience people to experience the brand through the website rather than going into big box retailers and not really experience. Mm. When you read about the fabrications, the yarns, you know, I love telling stories about fabrics and how we got to make these fabrics. Um, you know, one fabric, for example, that I created, I sourced, I sourced a fabric out of Europe. I loved, the, I, I loved the fabric, and but then I found out later that the recycled yarns were actually made in China, shipped to Italy, this really famous Italian mill. And then the fabric was shipped back to Asia again. So I thought, no, that's nonsense. That's you know, that's not great on, on, on the environment. So I managed to source the yarn, knitted it in China, cost me thirty percent less, but it even got the moisture management better than what the Italians had it. So 
you know, so the price points will be really will be great value price points. So many recycled brands that are out there have massively inflated price points because they don't know how to source the yarns properly. And I really feel like this brand, it's open to the masses. Um, you know, it's um, it's recycled. You know, real 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 low footprint on the planet. Um, you know, everything that I do, I I say to my team, can we do it better sustainably um, as well? So yeah, so that's really cool. Yeah. Mate, your your passion is just contagious. I just I can imagine working on your team and you coming into the office each day and just everybody it's just a, I guess that moves me on to this next part of the podcast because this this passion, this energy that you have. Um it's just the ability to sustain it is really quite something. And I read I think it was on your LinkedIn page actually. I read this quote. Uh entrepreneurs are the only people that are willing to work 90 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else. I mean, that is almost the way you've operated for so, so long. But how you've talked about your family a little bit, your relationships and your team, you can't do all of this on your own. You know, you've got three beautiful girls. How How have you managed to make that work? I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, I think multiple levels. I mean, you know, I am, you know, um, I mean, I have a very strong Christian faith as well. Um, and I think that has been great because we've got such an amazing community here in New Zealand. So one of the, one of the biggest things about leaving is that we've got, you know, people, you know, in our, you know, in our, in our friendship group that are like, I mean, like their kids are like my daughters and sons. And so I think, first of all, my wife, supporter, you know, you know, she's, even at times when we started the brand, she had to go back back to nursing, work nights, um, just to put food on the table, you know, um, you know, and then to go home and we had young kids at, time, at the time as well. And she's always worked whenever she needed to. So, and she's just a great mother, you know, great, you know, you know, even one of my daughters has gone through, struggled a lot with mental illness too, and just being there for her 24-7, you know. Um, and, you know, so I think our support network through our, our community, um, both Christian and non-Christian, you know, and and we've got great friends, great support network. I mean, my wife is just such a, you know, all the all the young people around us all call her Mama Sue. She's just she's there for looking after their babies, and so I think just really a really great community um, and great kids. I mean, my kids are so resilient and um, and um, have to put up with me for all these years, and you know, I go out of my way to always embarrass them whenever I can. Um, you know, um, and but I mean the fact of the matter is that this is one thing I it's quite funny. You know, my my second daughter, um, second daughter, she's actually getting married in two weeks' time, and she's marrying actually my two I said the business. She's she's marrying him, um, and he's and he's exactly like me. And I always say, see, you're marrying your dad. I mean, there you go. You know? <laughs> just, just they always you say you're marrying your dad. You know, so she's marrying him, and oh, he's and he's actually heaps smarter than me. So I'm, um, but um, but anyway, he he's fantastic, and and so look, I think support networks, great family. Obviously, you know, my my belief structure is really important to me. Um, you know, as well, um, and that's been, you know, I, you know. Believe it or not, you know, one thing I always treasure is, you know, every single Sunday I go to church and we just don't hear about, um, don't hear about, you know, about what, you know, about being good. We hear about life lessons, about, you know, how to be someone who is forgiving and kind and patient and thankful for what you have and, and all these elements in life. I mean, I truly believe that if you want to live a healthy, sustained life, 
it's, it's up to you if you want to take your mindset there. If you want to be someone who is thankful for what they have, you know, or and somebody, somebody serves. I mean, I think think that's one thing that I look at my wife's life, and I'm trying to be more this way now too, is just to serve other people, you know, and mm. invest into invest in their lives, and and that that those things are really really important. I think if you live a life, and I think the problem we have as athletes, and we're often really selfish, you know, and I think you know so many guys substitute doing Ironmans and that too um, to try and mask things in their lives that maybe are, are missing, you know, and, and actually they do become more and more selfish. And I think to try to find that real balance about being a good father, a good husband, a good employee, a good employer, but also serving others, you know, reaching out to others, helping them, supporting them is a really important way to, to true find, find a really good balance in your life um, is really important. That's all really beautifully said. I, I think, you know, the, the church, you know, is not only is I think the, the Bible one of the greatest self-help books ever written. And I, and I say it in that way. Yeah, my brother's absolutely. a chaplain actually. My brother's yeah. a chaplain in St. Peter's in New Zealand, a private school down in oh, wow. just down from you. Um but we often job. chat about that and and I always feel like, you know, we're all out there writing self-help books and and everything else and I'm kind of like the, the scriptures have some amazing amazing stories. Even if you're a non-believer, yeah. The Bible is still one of the greatest self self help books ever yeah. written, and, and if yeah. you can turn to it. But on top of that, the church, and you touched on it, and the community that it creates, the community yeah. of the the church is, is something that I think we've we've lost sight of a lot in society in this last sort of twenty thirty years, and and I think that's why we we tend to have more issues. Um, yeah. With, with, with kids and, and finding their way, and I, I think that that community is everything. And then, like you said, the the, the gratefulness and the being thankful for what you have, and then serving others. They're, they all yeah. come out of the gospels, but it, it's really now we all talk about them. Like you know, who's the latest self help person telling us to yeah. be grateful and thankful? Right? It's like, hang on, no, I completely it's been thousands of years. <laughs> and, and, you know what? It's, it's so true. I mean, I it's quite interesting. I did a um, I I I, I did quite a bit of speaking um at various churches, especially to the youth. Which I have a real heart for, and and there's a, uh, a a Harvard professor who discovered through years and years of, of research about how to be truly happy, and it's basically basically I mean he's an he's an atheist, and it's taken complete. I, I actually did a sermon on how it completely aligns with the Bible. <laughs> you know the things that yeah. said it's like well here's a scripture that supports that. I mean and, and and a lot of it was about being being a servant to others, about investing in others' lives and. You know, and being thankful for what you have, even in times of distress. You know, and mm. and so honestly, you're right. It's a, it's a really good self help book, and, and um, you know, it's, it's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and look, touching on that, you know, and you mentioned earlier in the in the episode, you know, you you'd, you've struggled with some some depression, and um, and I think I think a lot of us whether we call it depression, we go through tougher times where where it feels like you can never get out or whatever it is, and how how were you able to how are you able to now and then manage it i mean it, it's are you using sort of any kind of specific mental strategies to to manage that anxiety or or yeah. what what kind of morning routine would you do to sort of help yourself with that yeah i mean like it's you know it's i think once you've had depression it's it's I wouldn't say it's a daily struggle for me now, but it's always lingering, you know, and mm. a lot of it's based on anxiety. I mean, I think, you know, most depressions are, are brought on by anxiety. And for me, it's about just trying to balance my days. I cannot, I mean, I, I, I say to my staff every day, look, guys, not every day, most days, look, guys, I'm going to be here for three or four hours today. 
I only have the capacity to put three or four hours on, you know, I also want to go for a bike ride too. I'll go for a run, but, uh, but, but I go and I go and saying, look, I just, all I have is this much today. And, and in that, I mean, I started a routine probably about a year ago now where in the old days I would get up and go, go swim training. Even the last few years, I, you know, I, I'd get up and go, you know, swim squad six o'clock start. But now, over the last year, I've decided that I'm going to start the day every day. I'm going to get the first fruits of my day, you know, to guide into myself. And so, basically, I get up at six o'clock every morning. I have an hour and a half where I even just sit in my. I, I, I've got a great view over the ocean here in Auckland, over the harbour, and I sit in my balcony. I'll read the Bible. I'll I'll pray, but often I'll just sit there and just think and just you know think about what's going on in my life and. And it actually just obviously it lowers my cortisol levels. It just brings me mm-hmm. into the day in this really slow, slow way, rather than going swim training and you know doing twenty five one hundreds on one thirty coming in or you know one twenty and coming <laughs> in on one fifteen and you know trying to hang on the Cameron's feet, you know, and um, you know, and it just starts my day slower. So I've now learned, and and if I am tired, I can't go out on a Saturday morning and do a five hour bike ride. I've I've got to just really manage. I've got to manage my days, um, mm-hmm. you know, and so. So really now it's a lot of conscious decisions that I have to make, but I cannot burn candles at both ends anymore, you know? And so yeah. that's really, really helped me and um, a lot to so just having that really early ritual to each day just to get up. And I'm fortunate enough that I, I can do my own hours at work and, um, you know, and I can escape in the day and do, do training. But um, that first part of the day for me is really, really important. Just to get I the couldn't day agree with you bright. more. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. agree with you more. And I, I think maybe it's our age because we are the same age. We were discussing that yeah. before the show. But it, but it is that, uh, you know, for me, Laura still gets up in the morning at 6 a.m. and runs off to the gym each morning and does something. And I'm like, no, I need to I need to have my time in the morning. Yeah. And then I like to have breakfast with both of the kids, you know, yeah. they're two and they're 10 months old. I'm like, yeah. and I'm fully embracing that that's my focus. And then I'll go to the gym a bit later in, you know, in the morning for, for a little bit of a workout. But, but basically it, it's taking full control of your life and full responsibility. And, and I think that's, yeah. I think sometimes we're always controlled by either work, even if, even if you're an entrepreneur owning your own business, you still let work control you to some degree. Yeah. And, and I think now with age and wisdom, you, you've coming around and going, okay, no, these are what's really important to me. What, what is really, truly important to me? And, and that leads me into this next part, your general health. Um, yeah. You know, and I guess the mental strategies and mindset really work in with general health and metabolic health overall. But are you these days more conscious of nutrition and diet, or and that kind of thing? Uh, what are you What are you doing for that part of your life? I think um, oh, it's a shocker. I'm a shocker. It's <laughs> the one, one area of my life. It's my it's my weakness. And you're not very um, I, good at fibbing either. You're not no, very good no, at telling a lie. Um, you know what? I, I'm definitely I'm definitely better than I was a year ago. I'm going to give it more now. And I and I have this um, this called good green stuff smoothie. And I add some vitamin C to it. That's that, that's probably the best thing I do all day. But I am trying to be better. But I do have a sweet tooth, um, you know. And I do like alcohol. It's funny when I was an athlete, I did not drink at all. I remember I went out one day and I had. Uh, one sip of light beer and I was almost drunk off it. Now I could have probably four or five beers and I can't even feel it, you know. But I mean, alcohol is my thing. But oh, look, look, I mean, I I'm conscious enough that I, but I can definitely be a lot better than what I am. Um, and I actually I actually do know that it would even be better for mental health if I was better in this area because there's, there's enough studies enough studies out there to talk about it. Um, hundred percent. So you know, but I mean, it's not great. It could be much much better. Um, and I always justify the fact that I work out every day that I can afford to have an extra 
you know, beer or glass of wine or something at night. Um, well, no, well, I, well I, you're I, right I'm on that. <laughs> no, but, no, um, but you're right on what you're saying. I mean, yeah. every time you hear something and you listen to a podcast or whatever and they're talking about a certain you know, gut biome or they're talking about a certain diet or nutrition and they all end with, but if you work out enough, you know, you should be fine. Yeah. Like it's always like yeah. that, that, that idea of yeah. keeping the engine moving is critical. Um, yeah. My life has become a little bit more with, with Laura, with the two kids. She was always pretty full on into nutrition and understanding supplements and everything and, and all that world and I always just did what I was told but then she got pregnant and started breastfeeding and having these kids and so mm. our life now is about as all organic and everything as you can wow. imagine um, yeah. I do start the day with a little pump for the one of the sponsors here with Athletic Greens so if you are looking I can send you some of that they, they're actually a New Zealand company originally oh, wow. Athletic Greens um, wow. fantastic product just an all-in-one you know whole foods green drink yeah. that's just uh, very easy to start your day is my point so um, for somebody like yourself that doesn't want to get too far into it that that, that you made me laugh though buddy I, I love that you <laughs> You can't lie. So you just, and it's all right. This is, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no, I, I know, I know, I, I know that if my wife listened to the podcast and heard me say that I was good, uh, she would rib me too much. So I had to be honest. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, Laura and I, we, we retired in 2016 from racing and, and we did, towards the end of our career, we started to enjoy a couple of beers together. And then, uh, you know, when she got pregnant, she stopped drinking and, and so my partner in crime, so I haven't drunk now for probably three or four years. Um, but I did say to her the other day, when are you stopping breastfeeding? Because, you know, I want my buddy back. I want my my beer drinking buddy back. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> how, many, how many hours? Are, you, you mentioned when you were traveling and things, you know, 200 days a year on the road. And I mean, hours of sleep. Um, how are you, are you getting enough hours? What kind of hours of sleep do you need? And, and what kind of recovery work are you doing? Oh, I, I need at least eight hours a night. Otherwise, I'm, I'm a complete mess. Um, um, you know, so that's definitely a big, a big issue for me is, is how many hours sleep I get. Um, if I get seven, I'll probably need to have an afternoon nap in the afternoon. Um, so that's so, so that's definitely a major issue with, um, with, with me. And I would, I would love to have less sleep, but I just can't. You know, I need at no. least eight hours. No, I think that's more than fair, mate. I don't think. Are you doing anything, you know, beyond your morning routine that you talked about? Any when you come home from these trips and an extended travel, in terms of grounding techniques, are you doing anything to sort of ground yourself to get back into normality quicker? Well, I, I always try and I always try and come home and just do a little light workout. But but you know I but I, I always say to my wife, look, I'm going to have to have an afternoon sleep for like the next the first three or four days when I get home. You know, and yeah. I, I, I do actually love going to the US, coming home, and I'm awake at like three or four in the morning. I love mm. between four and six in the morning. I sit on my deck, I watch the ships come in. I love that so much. But then obviously yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, you're absolutely exhausted. So I, I'll, I'll try. And I think working out for me has been great. I mean, I, I work out every day. Um, mm. I might have one day off a fortnight. A fortnight. Um, but I, um, but I, you know, that definitely helps me get into the routine, I think, a lot faster than, than if I didn't work out. Mm. Mate, this has been so amazing. Finally, it, some advice for listeners who are maybe thinking of, you know, starting their own company or considering going out on their own. What do you think? Do it? Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, I mean like if, if – um, it's hard to say because, I mean, if, if your idea is truly unique, I mean, I, I always say – um, when it comes to business, try and own a niche. I mean, I think, you know, so many guys, for example, I'll give you an example. I mean, someone came to me a few weeks ago and said, hey, look, I want to start up a, a golfware company. 
I said, look, that's a really crowded market. Why don't you just go out and try and make the world's best golf belt or an element of it? Just try and own a piece of the market. Don't, you know, try and don't try and be all things to all people. I think you, you and, and try and go into a space where you truly have your own playing field. Um, you know, I mean, like so many guys I see get in and make do cycle brands. And I'm like, mm. oh man, you know, because so many factories now are so set up to help these little guys start brands, but there's this massive amount of brands out there now that it must be hard for them. I mean, I mm. see just the amazing amount of cycle brands that are out there because everyone dreams of having their own cycle brand, it seems to be, you know, and, you know, I mean, I would say to that, you know, try and do something a bit different, you know, try and own another space within the cycle clothing, be an awesome bike sock maker or just trying to something that's a bit different, you know, so try and find a niche, try and own it, and then try and learn as much as you can about that niche. I mean, it's so much easier Say you were doing bike socks, learn about the fibers, the filaments, the applications that you can apply to it. You know, what should a sock and sock actually have? You know, A, B, C, D. You know, where should it be supportive and how long should it be? And what kind of applications for cooling or heating so you don't get hot feet when you cycle? Or just try and learn as much as you can about a real niche. But if you, I feel like um, if you go in, with aspirations that are too big sometimes, um, all you're going to probably do is fail, you know. So mm-hmm. just really try and try and own your niche. Try and find something which is attainable, bite-sized, and then grow from there. Learn and then learn how to own your backyard before you try and go global, you know. So, Wow, that was, a, that was fantastic, mate. That was absolutely brilliant. Now, finally, just before you go, you said you are you moving to the UK uh, as a permanent move or just to try and start this brand? What's happening there next year? Yeah, so right? yeah, so we're actually leaving there. We're actually going there next month for my first. But basically, my um, my second daughter has had a lifetime dream to be a doctor. Um, she 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 missed out on getting into med school four years ago, so she went off and did a nursing degree. But in the meantime, she's been sitting exams, and so she's actually managed to get into a UK med school. Um, she starts oh, in brilliant. January. Um, and she's the one who's getting married to the guy who works for me. So oh. he, said, he said to me, Jamie, you know, I want to keep working for you. Why don't we go to the UK and launch the brand there? Way bigger market. We're close to Europe. Um, and I and my wife and I were like, why not? You know, we can. And our youngest daughter also wanted to go to um, college in the UK and do um, fashion psychology. And the only only degree in the world of that is in London. So we're all heading up to the UK, I'd say three or four years, and then we'll take it from there. So exciting. Oh, good on you. Good on you. I love that. And you, your family, you go, you just seem so close. You know, you really are great role models to, to just hear the love of family. So I just think that's absolutely fantastic. And and I'm really excited for this, you know, Presio. Is that how I say it? Presio gear? Presio. Yeah, Presio.com. Uh, I went and checked it out. I've got, you know, it's the countdown clock is there. So the, the pressure's on. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, mate, this has been a real thrill. Your journey and all your lessons that you've learned in your process. It's just so many great takeaways on this one. So I really, really appreciate you coming on and, and having a chat with me, mate. My pleasure. Yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you can go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media for show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and all the links. Um, I'll put prestio.com in there. Can't wait to try the gear, mate. Um, stay on the line and I really appreciate it, buddy. Cheers. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. 
For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.